Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. The word of the Lord. So um, we've got a sermon title here, Vocation and Relational Breadth. This is as we're continuing on in a sermon series on relationships. But um, we're going to start off by just throwing out that sermon title and trying a new one, Singleness and Relational Breadth. It occurred to me as we looked last week, in particular, at sex and God's purposes and how our true longings are meant to be found first in God and then in deep, intimate relationships with one another. That we need to address the issue of singleness, both as singles in our church, but also as people who might be married. Because here's the issue. If we're going to call people to a biblical narrative, to, the, to God's story and his intentions for sexuality, then we need to call people to something that is actually hopeful. Not just don't, but what are we offering in its place? Do we actually make relational depth possible for all people? Are we a church, for example, that's filled with intimacy and deep friendships where somebody can find relational connection at the most personal level? And as I was reflecting on this, it made me think this question, what is it like to be an unmarried person in a church like CCV? Can those who are struggling sexually find deep and fulfilling friendships here? Can the divorced or widowed, single of any sort, experience loving extended family here? And so I was reflecting back on some conversations I've had through the years, some more recently, some a few years ago, and here's some of the struggle and longing that I've heard from friends of mine who are not married. One divorced friend said this, 
It's hard to come into church at CCV on a Sunday. It's hard to come into CCV by yourself because it's a church with perfect families. They come in as husband and wife and kids and everything looks, looks perfect. And she said, I know they're not. I know they have issues, but it looks like it. The question is for those who are married and have families, are we open and honest enough about our struggles that nobody would think that? That you and your spouse fought on your way here and didn't even want to sit next to each other. Is that obvious? Maybe not. But does somebody know you well enough to know that that's the reality of your struggle? A friend of mine who is openly and actively gay and sexually active said to me as I was talking to him about the Christian narrative for sexuality, said, that's easy for you to say, Johnny. It's easy for you to say God calls us to celibacy outside of the biblical definition of marriage. It's easy for you to say because you're married and you're allowed to have sex. And I had to ask myself, am I even providing the sort of relational depth and intimacy that can meet his needs, his true longings, outside of sex? And I wasn't. Another divorced friend said, there's a point at which I realized that I could turn a church off. Meaning this, my actual family, they might be annoyed with me or angry with me, but they would never cut me off. The two churches I've been a part of, I've gotten to a point where I was no longer sure I was accepted. Is this a place of grace and forgiveness and love? And then just listen to some of the longings. One single and unmarried friend said a number of years ago, look, sure, I want to have kids. But more than that, the reason why I want to get married is because I want somebody on my team. Do we provide the sort of friendships where we are for one another, on each other's team? One of the other friends who's divorced said, on a person-to-person level, I just want to know that you care about me. So that at two in the morning, if I need to bury a body, I want to know I can call on you. Are we trustworthy and loyal? Wesley Hill, a single New Testament professor at Trinity School for Ministry outside of Pittsburgh, wrote in a Christianity Today article this month He wrote about his desire for friendship as a single person. He says, as a single person, I acutely need intimacy and loyalty from my friends. I'm eager for them to say to me, we love you because you're ours, without leaving an escape clause. He's looking for commitment from friends. You know, for decades, the church, at least in America, has emphasized marriage, and that is a good thing. It needs to. Marriage is breaking down, and that's probably another sermon or two. But one of the things that we've also upheld, unfortunately, I think, is we've upheld the nuclear family over the extended family. And we've set it up in such a way that we have dismissed single people. 
So basically, the underlying assumption in many churches, and I'm not sure that it's not here, is that if you're single, you must be incomplete in some way. And how do we get this? A 40-year-old single person walks into the church, and what are we trying to do with them? Set them up. Hmm, I think I know somebody that would be good with him. The underlying assumption is by himself, he's incomplete. And as a church, if we're going to uphold the call for biblical faithfulness when it comes to sexuality, are we cultivating the sort of friendships that develop intimacy and trust and love so that everybody can be known, everybody can be loved, everybody can experience the depth of human relationship? If not, we're failing to provide real hope for the single or the sexually struggling. So, picking it up a little bit, the aim this morning is to help us even just start to have a slightly higher view of singleness than the church has often held. And secondly, to try to think through what it looks like for us to create a place where both the married and the unmarried can find a home that maybe this church over the next five or ten years can start to become an extended family. The sort of thing that used to exist in the world and doesn't anymore because of our upward mobility, but maybe we can begin to cultivate even just temporarily in a place like a local church. So in 1 Corinthians 7, which was really supposed to be our main starting point today, what I saw as I was reading this was the range of relational statuses, status I, that Paul gives. In 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about people who are married. He talks about people who are unmarried. He talks about widows, separated and divorced people. He talks about people who have all sorts of relational connectedness or not in the kind of legal married sense. He also talks about whether you have been circumcised or uncircumcised, meaning Jewish or Gentile and whether you're a slave or a free. He's hitting on all manner of social connection. He talks about men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, the very things he's talked about in Galatians. When he comes in and says, all of us can be one in Christ. In this ancient world in which they lived, there was social hierarchy based on whether you were a male or a female, a Jew or a Gentile, married or unmarried, slave or free. And when Paul lays out the gospel... He lays it out in such a way that says these distinctions no longer have a bearing before God, and they shouldn't in the family of God. And what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 7 is he elevates both marriage and singleness. He elevates marriage as a lifelong covenant in verse 39, as the unique place for physical sexuality in verse 4. He even says in verse 16 that a spouse plays a role in revealing the gospel and maybe even bringing salvation to their spouse. But not only does he elevate marriage, he also elevates singleness. In verses 7 and 8, Paul uses himself, his, himself as an example, and he says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Think about what Paul is saying. 
This is completely radical. Christianity was the first religion in the ancient world that ever breached the subject that a person could be complete and whole as a single person. It set up a standard that was counter to a Jewish understanding of family and heritage, to a Roman understanding of the need for procreation to fill the economic coffers of Rome. Paul is saying there is something inherently good and okay in singleness. And he uses his own life as the model of how faithfulness before the Lord can be fruitful, relationally fulfilling, and satisfying in calling and purpose. And of course, Paul could go on to point to Jesus, who wasn't really incomplete, not the sort of person you needed to set up with this girlfriend of yours. God has put his image on each of us, and each of us has a place. And the, one of the reasons why Paul is able to say this is because he, he basically says this in our passage, whatever our relational status our primary calling is to be others-oriented instead of so self-focused and to be God-oriented. He puts this in verse 32 and 35, especially the God-oriented part. In verse 32, he, said, he says, hey, you know, here, here's one of the good things about being unmarried is rather than being anxious about your, about your, about your, spouse, your spouse and how to please the Lord. And in verse 35, Paul's purpose in talking about singleness and marriage and remaining faithful in the position that you're in is to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Our primary purpose in life, our primary calling is to God, is to please God, to serve God, to know God. And that can be done whether you're married or single, have kids or are a kid or don't have kids. That in all of these things, there's an opportunity to know and follow God. And when we get to that place, we're able to be content. And that's why Paul, three different times, which is a way of being emphatic in the Greek, three different times in this passage talks about remaining in the status that you're in. Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And in verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. In verse 24, brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Why is Paul able to say this? In a culture that so valued marriage and family because they thought that was the only way to have honor, the only way to survive. Why? Because even something like marriage, which Paul has a very high view of, is meant to point to something more. In Ephesians 5, which I'm not going to have us put up, Paul is talking about husbands and wives and the marriage relationship. And Paul gets overwhelmed as he's praising the institution of marriage, if you would. But in the midst of this, this, this grand praise and thanksgiving and eulogy of marriage, Paul ends up pointing to Jesus says, even the best human marriage is meant to point to God's love for us in Jesus Christ. That at its best, a marriage reflects the gospel. It doesn't replace the gospel. So married or being single 
or having sex or having a best friend ultimately won't satisfy you. Paul is clear, not only here but elsewhere, only God can satisfy you. Only God can fulfill you. And that's the basic gospel message, isn't it? The gospel message tells us this. We are fallen and sinful people. As theologians and poets have put it, we are having a hole in our heart that we're constantly trying to fill. And we try to fill that hole in our heart with success or pleasure or family, good things possibly, but things that can't fill the void. Not only do we have a hole in our heart, but we are separated from God, from the relationship we're truly made for. But the gospel tells us Jesus has reconciled us to God, that through his death on the cross, he has forgiven us, and so he is able to love and accept us and to make us whole again, to fill the void that only he can fill. And you know, that's the place we need to be in order to know how to do relationships rightly. When we are finally reconciled and filled by God, we can finally begin to love people rightly. Because otherwise we end up loving people in order to get something from them. Or we end up idolizing people. We turn our spouse into an idol, our children into an idol, a best friend into an idol, sex into an idol, something that we go to thinking it will satisfy us and meet our needs, and it doesn't. When we are finally reconciled to God and the void inside of us is filled by him, we're finally able to love rightly, to be open and vulnerable with one another. Why can we be open and vulnerable? Because we've admitted we're sinners, So I don't look at you and say, well, I'm better than you. I mean, I'm a minister after all. And you can't look at me and say, hey, I'm better than you. My career is doing far better than yours. These sort of reasons that we hold each other lower or higher are thrown out. All of us are equally sinners and broken. We have nothing to hide. That means we can be open and vulnerable. That the perfect looking family can say, yeah, we've got a lot of crud. You want to come see Help me to do life. We're trying to figure it out. Only when we have been reconciled to God and filled by him can we begin to commit and love people as God loves us. Not selfishly, not guardedly fearing we're going to be hurt, but because we know we've been loved by grace, not by works, we can begin to love people, commit to them, even if we know they're going to not live up to the standards that we've set. We've been loved by grace, brought in by mercy, and we can extend that to others. The gospel, the gospel creates a new kind of family. It reorders our social and relational values, or at least it should. You see, in the gospel, as one theologian put it, All the normal categories that we have for dividing people are relativized, redefined, or thrown out. When the gospel comes in, we no longer see each other as Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, married or single, hot or homely, brilliant or dull, really funny or completely boring. All these categories of value that we place on ourselves and others, these are thrown out. 
our social and relational divisions are tossed out. They're no longer valid in the gospel because in Christ, everyone is welcome. And in Christ, everyone is needed. And that means that your widowhood or your sexual struggles or your lack of children or even being young, being a teenager, should not relegate you to being incomplete or half a person or not there yet. Because the gospel tells us we are all broken and all incomplete. And when we finally admit that, the gospel assures us that we are all welcomed and made whole again. We see that the gospel creates a new kind of family in the hope of Isaiah in Isaiah 56. In Isaiah 56, written a couple hundred years before Jesus, Isaiah the prophet gives the hope of what will one day happen when the Messiah, when Christ comes and reconciles us to God and restores all things. It's a hope for the foreigner and the eunuch. Very odd things for us to think about. A eunuch was somebody who was not able to have children. They were usually forced to be eunuchs in order to be high officials because a king never feared a eunuch taking over because nobody would recognize him as king. And he had no ancestors, so he wasn't going to create a lineage of kingship. And he had no drive, so he wasn't a threat to your wives. But a eunuch also had a very lonely and shameful life because in that ancient world, family and children, and having children were your source of value, success, and honor. And so to not have kids meant that you were worthless. To not have a marriage meant that you didn't have a place in society, really. And what's the hope that, that the gospel gives? The hope is that even you, the eunuch, who can't have any value in your world standards will have value in God's. Because your value is not based on whether you're married or have kids, but on what God says about you. And you are a child of God, brought into the family of God. And so you will have children in the family of God, even if you can't have them yourself. It's the hope of a family and a home for somebody who had no way of hoping for that on their own. And Jesus begins to live this out himself. There's a passage where Jesus' mother and brothers come looking for him. They think he's crazy. And people say, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? Who are my family? My family are whoever follows me. That's radical. Jesus is throwing out the old order of what was important and valued in that society and saying, there's a new way of understanding family. And that's whoever is in Jesus Christ is in the family of God. So radical was it that a woman named Mary Magdalene was brought in. Mary Magdalene did not have a husband in a day and age when if you did not have a husband or a man that you were associated with, you were a nobody. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed and a prostitute. 
When she met Jesus Christ, the demons were cast out. She was forgiven, completely repentant and restored, and she joined this band of disciples that became her family. She, as a single woman, had no way to provide for herself. In this family of God, she was provided for. She had no way to have security on her own. These men protected her, didn't abuse her. She found sisters and the other women traveling in this band with Jesus. This woman who was possessed and lonely and isolated and selling herself became somebody who experienced love, connection, family, maybe for the first time in decades. This is the picture of the church. The New Testament church uniquely elevated and included the unmarried and the widow and the childless. And it gave them a place and a home and a family. And so the question is, are we doing this? Is this the sort of place that the eunuch could find a home? That the single and the broken would find family? As I think about that, I'm overwhelmed because I don't even know what it would look like. We are so far gone from the sort of community and families that maybe existed in the past and are no longer possible that I don't know what it would look like for us to try to do that in our own lives or in a church. But I want us to think about it. I want us to try to aim for something that maybe is more than what we have. And so to kind of give us some, some markers, look back, look present, and let's look ahead. Looking back, the ancient world, the ancient world had a model for family and relationships that involved a three-generation connection. It was not primarily a nuclear family. Let's say you're the, you're the person in red there, just for clarity's sake, right? So you're the person in red there. In the ancient world, you were married, had children, but you also lived in connection to your parents. So there was always in any given uh, piece of property, any given household, parents, grandparents, and children all together in community. And beyond that, you had your extended family all around you. It was basically like if you think about the street you live on or in the townhouse complex, everybody in that townhouse complex or on your street is related to you. That might sound scary, but in that ancient world, it was a wonderful place to have a constellation of relationships where you never felt like you were alone, where the work and the celebration and the sickness and the the raising children and the caring for the aging was done together. So if you were a single woman in the ancient world, you didn't go off and find your own life. You lived with your family. And while you were there, you had connections to cousins and siblings and your parents and little children. Maybe you didn't have kids of your own, but you had kids. You were needed and you were cared for yourself. Now, of course, that ancient world also made an idol of marriage and family so that if you were single or childless, you were hopeless and shamed. The modern world has found a much much quicker way of getting on with it. We've thrown out extended family altogether. We don't live in the same village that we grew up in. Instead, we live in a world of economic opportunity and upward mobility. How many people grew up in the same town 
and then went to college in that same town and then had jobs in that same town. Besides me, who else has done that? (laughs) The reality is almost nobody. You move on and on and on. We have an upwardly mobile, transient society, and in many ways, that's good. It creates a world in which people who are in born into poverty, can grow into into success economically and independence, where maybe your parents didn't go to college, but you can. These sorts of things are very good parts of the world in which we live. But we've also thrown out relational connections. There is no three-generation family. There is very little extended family connection except for maybe an annual reunion. The thing that we have focused on is nuclear family. Few of us have long-term friendships. We've made an idol out of our independence, out of financial success, out of self-fulfillment, and out of pleasure. Most of us assume relationships are temporary. We've seen it in marriage. We've seen it in friends who have grown distant. And the result is many of us in this world today live very isolated and lonely lives. So what might it look like to develop something more like the relationships that were available in the ancient world in a modern and transient society? I don't know. But I want us to begin thinking about it. And so what would the church look like if we became the new extended family? It may not look like everyone is married, but it should look like everyone has peer friends. And not only that, but whether you have kids or not, you should have kids in this place. And whether you are 30 or 40 or 50, if there is somebody older in this room, you have parents. Some of you are at the bottom end of this age-wise. Some of you are at the older end of this. But in the church, we can uniquely have three generations together. We can have an extended family, not based on blood or law or pragmatism, but based on baptism and faith in Jesus Christ. None of us should be lacking in aunts and uncles and cousins and siblings. None of us should lack in deep friendship and connection. The family needs to have relational priority over marriage. Dale Keene wrote this in his book, Sex in the Eye World. If the church is to become this, then the extended family needs to have relational priority over marriage because all of us All of us are born into family, even though not all of us will marry. Being single should not be a death sentence or a sign that one is odd. I want to know what it would look like for us as individuals to not lack a broad constellation of friends, of connections, of meaningful relationships. In order to do that, we need to prioritize relationships in a way that we haven't before. We need to look to cultivate friendships in a way that we haven't done very well in our culture. And so we need to allow for committing to one another as friends. And that's going to often fall on affinity lines. If you are a newly married couple, you're going to want to find other newly married couples. If you are an empty nester, you want to hang out with other empty nesters. If you're in this sort of career, you want to find other people in your career field. If you like football, you want to hang out with other people who like football. We should be able to do that to develop those deeper friendships along affinity lines. But we should also push outside of that, push the breadth of our relationships a little bit. 
into people who are not just like us, if you're married into people who are single, if you do not have kids, into people's lives who do have kids. And that involves sacrifice. And that involves stretching a little bit. But it's answering questions like this. Who has God put on my heart today that's not just like me? Or who maybe do I need in life? Or who needs me today? So, just kind of bringing this to a close. I I want this to be the start of a conversation. And actually the start of an experiment over the next five to ten years in this church. What does it look like to be an extended family? Can this church be a place for all people to find relational depth and breadth? A place where the widow is not lonely. Where the single have teammates. Where new parents have extra arms to hold kids. Where an empty nester whose kids are grown still has toddlers running around their ankles. Can we provide the sort of intimacy and connection that is more satisfying than sex? Can we be the sort of family and home that offers all people a place to thrive and be loved and experience God? I'm going to end end with a more extended quote. I quoted Wesley Hill, a New Testament professor and single man, as he was talking about his need for friendship. But the other part of Wesley Hill's story is that he has same-sex attraction but feels called to celibacy in biblical faithfulness. And this is what he writes. When I contemplate a lifetime of celibacy, I know I want committed friends who will walk beside me on the journey. What I'm yearning for isn't just a weekly night out or a circle of people with whom to vacation. You see, if marriage offers husband and wife the opportunity to cultivate long-term fidelity and the quiet intimacy of a shared history, then I need a way of being single that affords me a similar, though not identical, opportunity. I need people in my life who know what time my plane lands, who will worry about me when I don't show up when I say I will. I need people I can call and tell about the funny thing that happened in the hallway after class. I need to know that come hell or high water, a few people will stay with me, loving me in spite of my faults and caring for me when I'm down. And more than that, I need people for whom I can care. As one friend of mine put it, you want someone for whom you can make soup when she's sick, not just someone who will make you soup for you when you're sick. Can we be those sorts of people, that sort of church? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would meet us in our loneliness and our brokenness and our prioritizing ourself and our finances over people. Help us to know forgiveness for our brokenness, wholeness where we have been empty, your love for us 
where we have sought so many other things. Give us your grace so that we might experience life to the full in you and with one another. Amen. To all the dead and disappointed The ones who feel like they are done This is a word to all the ones who feel forgotten But you are not But you are not We're alive, alive Alive and we're singing, we're alive, alive, alive and we're shaking, we're alive, 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 alive in you. This is a call to all the dead and disappointed, the ones who feel like they are dead. Is a word to all the ones who feel forgotten, but you are not. But you are not. So we're alive, 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 and we're singing. We're alive, 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 and we're singing. 